Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Policy Director Brian Wild and Senior Policy Advisor Zach Fister join Strategic Advisor Mark Begich for a bipartisan political update that covers hot button primaries, including those in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and California. In a primary season suffering from sensory overload, they drill down on how polls have continued to be misleading and question the presumed given that Democrats will sweep the midterms. With Democrats running on a national agenda and Republicans running district-by-district races, they discuss how politics this season have clearly not stayed local. Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. Today, we're going to talk a little politics. We have two of our top-notch people here at Brownstein to talk a little of the politics of what's going on. First, I want to introduce Senior Policy Advisor Zach Fister, boasts extensive experience in Democratic politics and policymaking. Zach has worked for several members of Congress, most recently serving for Larry Kissel, Democrat from North Carolina, before coming to Brownstein. Zach was the Senior House Democratic Lobbyist for the Credit Union National Association, advocating on issues related to business lending, consumer protection, tax provisions, and CFPB regulation. Also, I'm joined by Brian Wild, policy director, draws on his two decades of experience in Washington, D.C., including in the White House, Senate, House of Representatives, and private sector. He previously served as senior advisor to then-Speaker of the House John Boehner and Majority Whip Kevin McCarthy. So, uh, the season has fully engaged, I guess we could say. Last Tuesday, there were some primaries. We have primaries going on this week uh, with some more states, and it seems like the activities are uh, are heating up. Let's maybe take West Virginia as the first one, because that seemed very interesting toward the end, the Senate race there, uh, primary. You had three candidates running. You had kind of these rumors, and I call them rumors only because I kept seeing data that never said this, but you had the press talking about Blankenship potentially being the nominee, and it didn't end up that way. Um, Now you have kind of that field in one of the contested, highly looked at uh, Senate races, West Virginia. We have another one this week, and uh, more kind of happening, one in Pennsylvania, which is a House seat. So a lot of activity now going on. Maybe uh, either one of you want to give me kind of a feel of what What's it shaping up to look like? Uh, you know, I, I think from my perspective, it just seems like the fields are getting put together and Democrats are raising a lot of money. Uh, Republican organizations are raising a lot of money. So what, what's the lay of the land? I, I can say from the, you know, from the Democratic perspective, I think with, with regards to West Virginia, obviously Joe Manchin won handily. Uh, some folks are making hay of the fact that his primary opponent got 30 percent of the vote. Uh, West Virginia is pretty unique in terms of its electorate. Um, it has a closed primary system, yep. so uh, only registered Democrats and registered Republicans can vote in their respective primaries. Uh, some of those uh, were uh, protest votes, but as is common in West Virginia, I think the uh, the other thing you have to look at is that two of the three Senate candidates on the Republican side are former Democrats. Um, there's a lot of crossover <laughs> in West Virginia. That was one of the campaign pieces, yeah. right there, saying he's and, a Democrat, then he's Republican, then he's a Democrat, then he's Republican. It was <laughs> a, it was a, it was a key tactic by uh, by Blankenship. I think Evan Jenkins' uh, history as a Democrat actually. Um, hurt him in the statewide situation because his district, West Virginia 3, is overwhelmingly uh, registered Democrats, which means that his, you know, even Republicans um, that weren't, or Democrats that vote for Republicans, 
uh, in West Virginia 3 could not vote for him in the primary, which I think um, hindered his chances. I will say, also say, you know, West Virginia 3 is, a, is very interesting um, on the congressional level, too. Uh, that's now an open seat race. That was, uh, I believe that was Nick Joe Rahal's seat for decades, Forever. 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has a history of supporting blue dog type Democrats. That's right. Who's running there now is a, an interesting fellow named Richard Ojeda. Oh, yeah. He is Very a top. state yep. senator, former uh, you know veteran. Uh, he is extremely populist. He's openly admitted voting for Trump. He now regrets it. He has rallied around the teachers union, the labor's union, the miners. They all love him. Interesting statistic out of West Virginia 3 is that Ojeda got more votes than all of the Republicans combined, combined on their side of the uh, aisle in the primary system while also having three or four other primary opponents himself. West Virginia is an interesting state. I mean, what is that? I mean, you mentioned that this House seat, we got one in, I think, Pennsylvania t- t- today. today. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the House? The Republicans control it now, but the the... I don't want to say the foregone collusion because in politics everything changes every week, but they all feel like the Republicans are going to lose the House. Does this start to mount what – I mean, example that Zach just gave about West Virginia, that seat, which could flip back to a Democrat – conservative Democrat, but still. What, well, what do you think I, I, I actually think you know tying those two together, I, th- I think West Virginia in particular, maybe Indiana, the primaries we had last week, mm-hmm. um, we learned a couple things. One, that, that D.C. still – can't read these elections very well. Right. <laughs> it's um, still a little that, schizophrenic that out there. <laughs> polling is, is way off, yeah. um, particularly the polling done by um, major media stations that had Blankenship up and Blankenship close, and uh, Blankenship lost uh, oh, uh, pretty mightily there. Mm-hmm. So I, I look the same way at you know this, this rumor of a Democratic wave and that it's a for sure thing that Democrats take over the House. Um, I think there's some hyperbole there. I think that that there's a lot of optimism on the Democrats' front. There's a lot of energy. Um, they have a lot of candidates. I mean, in one district in Pennsylvania, there are 10 Democrats running in the primary today. But when you look at it, you know, uh, by the time we get to November and you peel away all of those candidates and all of that money that's being spent on primaries, I mean, it's they still are going to have a really tough time um, taking the majority. I mean, we have uh, Republicans still have a redistricting uh, advantage, albeit in Pennsylvania that's changed, changed. a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, the number of, of retirements, you know, 47 members of Congress that got elected uh, last November uh, are not uh, running this time. Some of them are in the cabinet. Um, a lot of them have retired. And that that changes things, but there's still only uh, maybe 30 seats that that are up for grabs. Um, I think that that we Republicans feel like we have a firewall of about 210 mm-hmm. um, seats that we can control. You need 218 uh, for the majority, and so we're going to be duking it out over that that middle ground. Well, what do you make of this latest conversation? And, and I've only seen a few pieces on it, and have talked to some folks in in California that there's it's it, California is pretty much believed to be a blue state, but then there's this kind of conversation going on that some pockets that Republicans have holds may be stronger than people think. In other words, that the blue wave may not penetrate some of those areas. And it's kind of this mixed messaging coming out of that area right now on what really is going on in some of these races. Some fear fear that 
some of these races have too many Democrats in them, and therefore the single Republican or the two Republicans might make it to the to the tier. Any, any thought on that? I mean, California's always seemed to be growing in this kind of purple to blue solid. But right, California's fascinating when they have a, the, their primary system is different. Um, so that the top two vote vote getters, regardless of party in the primary, go on to face each other in the general. Election, so you're you're most likely looking at both the governor's race and the and the Senate race will have two Democrats against each other at the general election. So it's it, 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 it likely <laughs> increases you know Democrat turnover and 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 suppresses Republican I mean turnout and uh, suppresses uh, Republican turnout. Although uh, just in the in the last little bit they've they've added a, a ballot initiative uh, on the gas tax in California, which is a pretty major issue. Um, lots of driving, and yep, um, yep, yep. and and Republicans feel like that's going to help them on the, on the turnout model. Um, Generally, gas taxes are not popular across the country. I mean, it, it, you can argue the the logic of them that you know pays for the roads, therefore you drive on them, you pay for them. That's one of the most logical types of arguments. But then when you look at all the data, Democrat or Republican, they don't like it because it actually touches them personally every week. Because they got to pay this extra in their mind. Yeah, and Democrats. Democrats are trying to run um, on a national agenda. They're running against Trump. Um, they're they're focusing everything on this on a, on a national identity and and a thing like a gas tax and and the way that, that Republicans are trying to run is is as local as possible and district by district um, and that's how they're going to survive um, if it's a matter of survival and and that's how they're 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 going to grow if they want to grow. Let me ask you, Zach. I mean, here is and I know it just grinds Democrats. I enjoy watching and I try not to do too much of it, but watch the shows, TV shows, and watching a Democrat try to explain uh, Trump. I mean, if you take his name out of it and you say the president, to say it wasn't President Trump, but the president was able to have three hostages freed, you know, there are negotiations on getting a rebalance on trade in China, getting a fair treatment for American products. I mean, I can go through the list. In most cases, you would say, not a bad deal. But then when you attach Trump to it, everyone says, well, it's all bad. But in reality, is that good news for Trump, I guess? I mean, put all the other stuff aside, Cohen and all that, that's just kind of out there all the time. Is that good or bad as the Democrats move into this uh, election cycle with Trump having these successes that, you know, people can measure any way they want? But I saw data that even though it's been some... Uh, sad situation uh, with regards to the removing the embassy to Jerusalem, and now some deaths have occurred and so forth. But with uh, American Israelis who who basically support mostly Democrats, and the data now shows they're leaning more Republican. What, what is is that going to hurt or hamper Democrats' enthusiasm, or is that just a whole nother track? So a couple things. I, I think that. Right now, there you know over the last over the last six months, over the last fifteen months, there has been this building fury, fire in the belly of of Democrats um, based off of the president's actions in terms of uh, of you know what comes out of his mouth, how <laughs> he how he approaches things, uh, his unpredictability. Uh, can be a value at times, but oftentimes I think viewed by Democrats as uh, you know a, a complete 
you know, complete hysteria, complete mm-hmm. insanity in terms of how they view the process of governance. And what I think Democrats are fearful of, Democratic analysts and pundits and professionals are uh, fearful of, is that 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 hysteria turns into fatigue, which turns into uh, either complacency or just people being burned out. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like, like an you, overload. They're just right, too like much. a sensory overload. Like you, like you said, you know, we have a record high stock market. Mm-hmm. Unemployment's at three point nine percent. Hostages being free from South Korea. If this was any other, you know, generic. Republican president, mm-hmm. his approval ratings would be in the 60s or yeah. 70s Bush instead or Reagan, of 41. Just be way up there. Right. And so what, you know, there's all this talk about a, you know, signs of a wave. But as we all know, if you, if you think about how a, how a tidal wave starts, it starts out in the middle of the ocean. And if it's left un- unobstructed, it will come along the, the shelf. And that's right. when it builds right before it crests onto the shore. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about the, the three main factors, I think that you ha- we have to consider is one Pennsylvania. So, what happens today in the primaries? Do the do the Democrats put forth uh, candidates that are more suitable to win their districts in the general election? Do they put forth uh, more progressive candidates in districts that are a little swingier mm-hmm. um, that might give people some pause? California, the fact that there are two Democrats that are going to be at the top of the ticket uh, against each other right. is a wonderful thing for Democrats, but it does nothing if they're shut out of California 48, California 39, you know, mm-hmm. because if it's two Republicans, it doesn't matter who's at the top of the ticket. And, you know, it's, it's Dianne Feinstein uh, could very well be in the same situation where she's facing a Democrat mm-hmm. in the top two. And so you, you will have. Uh, the the governor and the, the Senate candidate receiving, as they normally do, the most votes outside of a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. um, as as statewide elected officials do in California, but all for not for Democrats. And then the 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 third factor I think is that complacency factor. I think Brian's point's right. There is a risk in Democrats being overly optimistic too soon and letting their guard down. And I think that Ohio primary uh, last week was a good example of that, that we need to pump the brakes in terms of, of, you know, getting back on track and focusing. Because if you see the fact that Richard Cordray and Dennis Kucinich, although Dennis Kucinich was easily dispatched, mm-hmm. 70,000 more Republicans voted in that primary. Right. And that's a big that's a big number. Number in a swing state like Ohio, that mm-hmm. or one that used to be viewed as a swing state, and their tr- Democrats are trying to get it back to that right. point. I actually think, from a Republican standpoint, I, I feel more comfortable uh, with Ohio and maybe even um, Pennsylvania than I do with Arizona. Um, you know, which has always been. A, a, a traditionally red state. Right. A lot of dynamic change there. And there's a, a lot, lot of things going on there. Um, the way that the, the candidates break, the, the issue on immigration, it suddenly is a state where we as Republicans haven't really focused a lot of attention or had to focus a lot of attention. And now it's we, we have to build up. And I think that there's going to be more of that. I think that this election is going to be a continuing shift in the general electorate um, and the the 
the Rust Belt states are, are going to probably continue to trend purple to red. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Democrats are going to start picking up in, in places where they hadn't played very strong before. When you um, think of Arizona, Nevada are probably likely pickups. I mean, cinema and uh, Arizona is running a hard campaign. She comes from a conservative House district, and she's been able to kind of walk both ends of it. And, you know, Nevada has slowly been trending. Uh, you know, you've seen that over the years. And that combination of where they're located, it just seems like that is moving. Even Texas. I think there's oh, there's, is- uh, there's a lot of, one, there's a lot of retirements in Texas, um, several committee chairmen. Um, but, but, but two, it's, it's a place where Democrats have run, run well, and mm-hmm. then lost um, consistently. And this, all of this enthusiasm might actually take a couple of them over the top, and, and we might see some some flips there that, that you would never normally think that Texas could now, flip. You think of Texas, in, and this is a trend line that's occurred uh, because of natural disasters, actually. If you look at Louisiana and some other states, when those natural disasters have occurred, people have left those states and gone to Texas, a big, sizable amount. And people have never calculated into their, you know, into the, the movement of what's going on in Texas, because they're moving to big cities. And if you look at most of Texas, large, all, most of the large cities are democratic controlled. And so when you start putting that out, suddenly you end up with this different dynamic. So it it is an interesting uh, cycle. Anything, you know, I've watched, I think, 35 maybe now, maybe a little higher, state House seats, uh, state Senate seats have switched from Republican to Democrat. Is Is that just the local politics, or do you think that's part of this larger perception or reality we'll know in November if it's a reality or it was perception of this movement of kind of anti-Trump or blue wave or whatever people call it. Is that or is that just the dynamics of politics that's going on in the states? Anything? I mean, what do you think, Brian, Zach, on that? No, I mean, I, I would say that if you look at the indicators in each one of those individual races, if you take aside the fact that they're from all different geographies, all different demographics, all different parts of of the country, and the candidates are all they're very scattered. different. Yeah, they're, very different. They're very different uh, in their backgrounds and and approaches to the campaign. The one thing that remains consistent is the overperformance by the Democratic candidate. Yeah. Whether it's you know it's anywhere from ten to twenty points in a lot of these cases. And, and granted, you know, in some of these districts. Uh, over the years, it's been a matter of the Democrats not fielding a candidate, and now they are fielding candidates everywhere. And Democrats and disgruntled independents and, and Republicans, uh, you know, have the opportunity to to cast their vote. And not the Democrats that don't win still overperform by fifteen or twenty right. points. And if anything is is there to look at, it's it's the math of the numbers now. Uh, I don't know how that plays, you know, on a on a congressional scale, on a on a national scale, but I think it's a good indicator that when we look at generic congressional Republican or Democratic polling, you know, uh, you know, no name Democrat versus no name Republican in no name district, mm-hmm. and it shows Democrats with a six point lead or a ten point lead or or whatever it comes out to. You have to take that with a heavy grain of salt because right. it really is. And Brian said it too. The Republicans know this. That's why they're that's why they're hitching their wagons to this approach. Is that it really is going to boil down to who are the candidates? Democrats can run without ever mentioning 
Trump, and I think most have taken that approach. Or I think it's embedded into their votes. It's Mm -hmm. it's embedded in their votes. Republicans can run in districts where it benefits them to mention Trump, but but there are plenty where they're going to not be inviting the president to fly in for for their uh, for their campaigns. Do you think? Let me end on this for both of you. I mean, one of the things it seems like this time of the year. Our clients, Brownstein clients, are, even though they have a lot of issues that they work on and want us to help on, they also want to know this, right? What's happening in the political world because they're trying to figure out in November what do they have to do to reposition, if at all. And that's at least my sense. Is that what you guys see? I mean, you know, for us, you know, when we're sitting around like this, talking about politics is, you know, kind of a sport, right? If we're not talking about hockey, right? (laughs) especially right now in this town, you're talking about, you know, what's going on in the next sport. And do you see this kind of uh, level among the clients that they just want, give them more feel as they're trying to figure out the next step? And and because we have this bipartisan approach here at Brownstein, we're able to kind of give them both sides so they they can analyze this better, and we can help them give the best advice. I mean, any any thought on that? Yeah, I mean, one, it, I think that's that's true. I, I also think, regardless, win or lose, no matter who takes the majority in November, there are going to be a lot of new members of Congress. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, you have you have that's just on the point. on the mm-hmm. on the House Republican side, you have forty seven. Um, non-returnings. You have 10 committee chairmen who've retired. Uh, 18 subcommittee chairmen have retired. Uh, The head of of really the moderate Republicans has retired. Mm -hmm. Um, So whoever replaces those, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, that's a lot of seniority that's walking out the door. You have three members of Republican leadership, starting with Speaker Ryan, who are not going to be here next Mm -hmm. year. So, you know, I think trying to project how to deal with with that crowd. And the same on the on the Senate side, you're losing a lot of seniority in, in mm-hmm. these in these races, and um, and we have a, a populist president right now who didn't run on a, on a philosophical agenda, but ran as a as a as a true populist, mm-hmm. and we're not sure how he's going to react um, if Democrats take majority or if it if it gets really tight. Um, where does the president pivot? Does he suddenly become the deal maker that we all thought he was going to be mm-hmm. uh, on things like infrastructure, which we haven't dealt with yet, on things like immigration, which we immigration, haven't dealt with should, yet? Yeah. You know, these are places that there's probably populist answers that, that he can reach across the aisle on. So, yeah, trying to trying to navigate post November is already we've already started planning that. And I, and I would just add, you know, there's a lot of speculation about uh, the Democratic leadership race. I think that a lot of that will depend on the actual in the House. In the House, I think a lot of that will depend on the outcome of the election. Uh, if the Democrats uh, pick up a healthy margin, um, I think that you will see. Uh, things fall into place. You know, I think that Nancy Pelosi uh, stands a good chance of being reelected Speaker. Uh, I think some of her deputies uh, may also uh, stick around as well. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's a situation where you have uh, Democrats in control of Congress by three seats, or Democrats missing the mark by three seats, and, you know, I think you're going to see you know a lot of discussions, and, and and that's going to be a decision that the caucus will have to to decide about the path forward. But one thing is certain is that if these margins, like Brian said, if they are 
uh, slim, uh, the the whoever's in charge, whichever party's in charge, the remaining members of the Tuesday group, because we know how these wave elections tend to work, is that the, the Tuesday group, moderate Republicans, the Blue Dogs, and some of the New Dems often take the, the brunt of the... Uh, of the losses in terms of the election. So whatever uh, Tuesday group members are still around, uh, along with the, you know, the what will likely be a larger Blue Dog New Dem contingent, there will be a, an immense amount of influence in the middle. And there will be a permanent gang of 30 or right, whatnot, that can move um, the dial. you know, the, the House version of the, of the Senate gangs that will move the dial. And and in this case, it, it is I don't think many people would have ever expected that you would have a populist Republican president with a with one of the narrowest House uh, splits in history uh, and and the House having to um, maybe in some cases, you know, pull him towards the middle. But it depends what issue he's you know, focusing on, because they may be pulling him to the middle from the right. They may be pulling him to the middle from the left. And it's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be very interesting. But we are... Uh uh, we are very happy that we have a, a strong bipartisan team here to uh, work that balance. Well, that's the one thing about Brownstein. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, well, always matters who's in the office, but for the firm, it doesn't because we have such a broad uh, breadth of uh, bipartisanship here and experience that as the deck changes, we move with that and advise the clients appropriately. As usual, to both of you, Zach Bryan, thank you very much for being here. As they would say, uh, uh, there's definitely change in the air. We'll see what it all lays out in six months from now or so. But again, thank you very much for giving kind of an update on the politics of Washington, D.C. in this country. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.